You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu. So, on the one hand, it's a, it's a real thrill and a privilege to introduce Marina Burrs. On the other hand, I realized after uh, in, insisting that I do the, uh, the introduction, uh, I realized that uh, the, the, the challenge was um, that I know Marina as a colleague, as a collaborator, as a co-teacher, <laughs> as a co-designer, um, and uh, that's, uh, that's why I'm so pleased to be introducing her, but I realized that's not the stuff you usually just say in an introduction. I need to say something, of, and I, I realized I didn't have memorized her biography, but uh, I thought, but I will uh, put on my glasses and read a few things from that just because, just to round out the introduction. Um, Marina, uh, Marina uh, got her um, bachelor's at Buenos Aires University. She grew up in Argentina, and she came here and got a master's at in BU and then a, a, do- a master's and doctorate here at the Media Lab with Seymour Papert. Um, she's received a Presidential Early Career Award um, from the National, uh, but and um, also a Young Investigators Career Award from the National Science Foundation. Uh, she's a associate Prode- professor at the Elliott Pearson Department of Child Development, and adjunct professor in the Computer Science Department at Tufts University. Um, I know through our work we've talked a lot about the difference between play pens and playgrounds, and so without saying anything more, I'll let her. Uh, Give her a talk. Thanks. Thanks, God. No, oh, I think I have my mic. own thing, so it's. Uh, I can hear myself. We almost don't need a mic here if it's cozy, but whatever. So thanks, God. So it's it's great. So you know we're small groups. So can you hear me? You're fine. Okay. So as Scott said, I'm from Argentina, so I do have an accent. So don't be afraid to say. Can you repeat? What did you say? What do you mean? And. Uh, We'll make it interactive. I have the slides I'll talk about, but then, you know, if there is some pressing thing, just, you know, stop or we'll, we'll, or otherwise we'll have the questions at the end. So we're going to start by thinking about metaphors. Uh, we're going to think about spaces where early childhood happens. And this is where you find a lot of young kids. This is a playground. What kinds of interactions happen in this playground? What kinds of things do you see kids doing? Playing games. What else? What? Growing. Growing. What else? Sliding. What else? Falling. Falling. There are risks in balls, right? A lot of risks. What else? What? Fights. Yes, there are fights and they engage also in conflict resolution. What else? They explore. They subvert some of these structures. I know the slide is to go down, but sometimes they go up, right? They use language. So if you were my child development students, I would say to you, everything that you study in CD1, language development, cognitive development, social development, motor development happens in the playground. So just go and observe what happens in the playground, and you'll be all set. And then believe your books, but first (laughs) look what happens. So we're going to contrast this space with this other one, a playpen. So what kinds of things happen or do not happen here in a playpen? Okay, we are on 
yourself, what else? <laughs> what? You're, you're what? Okay, you're trying to escape the playpen. Okay, that, that happens. You're trying to get out. Yes, what else? Exactly, it's predetermined. So this child is going to play with the toys that an adult or an older child chose for him and going to, you know, give. So there's not a lot of sense of control or autonomy in the sense of the child. Uh, what else? Who has little kids here? Does anyone have a little kid? Okay, what is this good for? There's one thing that's really good this for. Jail, yes. It's a safe place, right? So you, there's not a lot of creativity until they can climb, but you know it's safe. You know, kids, you know, if you need to go cooking or you need to do something else, you can, live there. you can leave them there for a little bit. It's safe. They might not be very creative, but it has its advantages. So as kids get older, of course, they get out of the playpen, and they also master this playground. The, the big ideas here that I want you to remember, if we think about Ericsson, who was a big child development person, is the job, your job, every person that has, as you develop, you have a developmental task, a job. I'm making it very simple. So your job when you're in early childhood is to explore, to imagine, to discover. That's your job for developing as a healthy child. So as you grow out, this is not enough. So when you're in elementary school, you move from the playground to something that looks like a park. And what kinds of spaces these parks offers that the playground doesn't offer? <laughs> sports fields and sports involves what? Competition, mastery, mastery of certain skills, right? So that's the big difference. Also, it's a big space. You're probably not going to have an adult watching over the fence. So there are more risks, but there's also a sense of that you can move around and you can choose your own activities a lot more than in the playground. And we're going to contrast this with this other space that you see all the elementary schools going. So the mall, right? So what happens at the mall? What? Yeah, they hang out. They walk back and forth. What, what, what are they basically doing? Maybe they buy something, but usually parents don't give them a lot of money at that age to buy. So they're basically hanging out, talking with each other, and going back and forth. Usually parents stay downstairs in the coffee at the mall, so they're there, they're not leaving them alone, but this is kind of the space. Of course, they are bombarded by things to buy, right? Buy this, buy that, and if they had a credit card, which they don't at that age, they would probably go and get everything because they're not sophisticated enough yet to understand uh, what to get and what not to get. So the big thing here, for, according to Ericsson, at this age is mastery and building confidence. Right, so yours are the developmental tasks. You know, elementary school, you learn the basics, all the stuff. But kids keep growing, and I don't have teenagers yet, but I'm sure, does anyone have teenagers here? Had teenagers? <laughs> I haven't experienced it yet, but I heard. <laughs> I'm gonna go, oh, I forgot to do the, I'm gonna contrast these two metaphors, and I wanna take some time here. So ignore this one now. So the first one, this is a book by Abraham Yeshua Heschel that is one of my favorite uh, Jewish theologians. And basically what he said was that the Jewish Sabbath, the space of the Sabbath, you know, Friday night to Saturday, uh, Friday to Saturday, was a space where the Jewish people used, it was a, a palace in time. So it, was a pa it wasn't a palace in space, it's a palace in time, where what you do 
is you contemplate. You explore who you are. You explore your relationship with God. You explore your relationship with others. So it's this place really of contemplation, of exploration, but not exploration of the outward, like we were looking at the at happening in the mall. You're not walking around with others, but you're really stopping everything you're supposed to be doing, and you are looking inward, stopping and contemplating and relaxing. So you'll see where I'm going. We're going to contrast this, which is, he calls it the palace in time, because it's like, it's a, it's a time. It's not a place that you go. It doesn't matter where you are. It's a time to stop and be with yourself and with others. And we're going to contrast that with this other image, which is wireless hangouts, other things that teenagers do, that they're also happening in time. doesn't matter the space where they are. Right? When they're at this age, they don't need to be constrained in a mall with a parent watching. They really get into the car, they go anywhere, doesn't matter where they are, it's about time. Time that they spend together and they extend this time by using any kind of media they have around. So we're going to have, a, a, I know this one, the Sabbath might be a little bit difficult to understand if you haven't experienced it yourself or if you haven't engaged in any kind of meditation or anything where you actually took time for yourself. But so we're going to contrast these two spaces. And the main job, according to Ericsson, is at this time, you, have, you are supposed you grow as you explore your identity and you build community. So those are your developmental tasks when you're a teenager. Right? And in this way, it's structure. In this other way, it's not structure. So in the, the, in the palace in time, provides you prayers, provides you certain times for doing things, certain rituals. So you are following some kind of structure. Here, you just hang out, you get together, and things happen. Good things happen, bad things happen, you know, everything happens. So now you are thinking probably, so fine, but we didn't come to hear any of this. Where does technology come in, right? Where is she going? <laughs> so where I'm going is that many technologies are like playpens, malls, and wireless hangouts. That's what we... No, and this becomes more evident if we think about early childhood. And early childhood is the area where I, the, the age range that I focus on. Uh, right now, for my PhD, I was working mostly in teenagers, and that's where the palace in time metaphor and the wireless hangouts. But right now, this is the work. And so you see a lot of tools that are about isolating children, working on one-on-one, -on -one, teaching them letters, mastery. But mastery is not for this age. doesn't matter that they know the letters when they are three and four. When they are three and four, they need to be doing the same things that they're doing in a playground, creating, exploring, imagining. The letters should come later. And there are also playgrounds and parks. And these are some of the tools that you guys, uh, if you have seen them from the Media Lab, uh, you know, Scratch or robotics, different kinds of things, like in my own work, like Zora, virtual world. So these are kind of spaces that are more like playgrounds, parks, and I would claim they are more like a balance in time. So, for example, the Zora environment was a virtual world that is specifically designed for people to explore issues of identity. I won't be talking about that today, but if anyone is interested, you can go to my website. There are videos, there are papers, actually, palace in time and explaining what does it mean. So the focus that I, I'm going to be talking with you today is thinking about playground technologies. So go back to that metaphor of the playground and how it extends. You know, so you, know, you can see from playground to park to a palace in time. As you grow, your developmental needs change. But your space comes to meet your developmental needs, but offering something that you need at that particular age. So that's, is it clear? When you're a teenager, probably it's not so much about exploring. It's about you know, finding who you are. And so the metaphor that we're using. 
So Playground Technologies engages children as producers, not as consumers, as creators, designers, researchers, programmers, engineers, problem solvers, communicators. For all of you that are probably at CMS or at the Media Lab, this is no news. Yesterday I was giving a talk for uh, 31 teachers, and this is news, because when they think technology, they don't think this, they think consumers. And this is what they see in schools, especially now more and more packages I offer to them. So, uh, what Playground Technologies do is they engage children in computational thinking, and this is probably a word that, have people heard this word before? Familiar computational thinking? Some of you are, some of you are not. That's good. So computational thinking is a type of analytical thinking that's similar to mathematical thinking. So you engage in problem solving, to engineering thinking, you design, you evaluate processes, and to scientific thinking, systematic analysis. And so when we want children to engage with technology, it's not just because the technology is cool and it's going to allow them to communicate better, to become a wireless hangout, but also because we think that there is something inherent to computation that's going to help them think in new ways. And the label has been this. And what it is, is it allows for abstraction. So anything that has to do with that. And I, I want someone to read this quote. Uh, Karen, you're chosen. Computers facilitate the spread of computational thinking. Computational thinking involves solving problems, designing systems, and understanding human behavior by drawing on the concepts fundamental to computer science. Jeanette Wing, 2006. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So this is a beautiful quote. And actually, when you, we talk with teachers or with educators, they're like, well, we have this list of things that we're supposed to be teaching. Now you want us to teach computational thinking also? We don't have a class on computer programming. And so basically you show how this is not, programming is not just something that comes on its own. It's actually part of something else that, you know, social issues as well. And what are the things that we are teaching? So we have a curriculum of what we call powerful ideas using Seymour Papert's words. And basically what we mean is the notion of computer programming as a sequence, engineering design process, flow, loops, sensors, parameter, conditional branches. Those are the big ideas. If anyone is interested in seeing how we develop curriculum, how we do curriculum, I brought an example that actually takes these powerful ideas and puts it in a particular theme. And you're going to be seeing a little video. But if people want to see uh, what a curriculum based on powerful ideas, not on standards or on, or on topic itself, but how those relate to the standards. But we start with the idea. And with the idea, we match to the state standards the other way around. So I brought you can see. That's great. So when Seymour Papert was doing his work in the 70s and the 80s and developing Logo, and they were talking, and they were not using the word computational thinking, but they were using the word technological fluency, you know, we thought it was great. Competence and confidence was everything we wanted. But that's not enough. That's not enough. And so developing character traits for using technology to communicate, to connect, and to contribute to society is just as important. And you can... This is, this is the core of what I'll be talking, and this is a, the core of my research, which is working with positive technological development framework. So for me, it's not just about teaching children how to use technology or how to become better at computational thinking of how to create a cool project, but it's really to provide them the tools so they can make a better world and they understand who, who they are. And you'll see that in, in a little video. So 
this PTD framework, you need a framework because otherwise, if you don't have a framework, what happens is you design the cool technology, and we love to design cool technology. You make the cool technology, you go to a cool place, you try it out, it works, doesn't work. Usually you have nice case stories to tell, so it usually works because you are there teaching it. And then uh, you go to the next place and you go to the next place and there's not, a there's not a framework that really allows you to build on experiences and to develop curriculum and to do professional development and to take the technology out there into the world. You really want to have, and you cannot assess it in a sound way. So what this framework provides is a way for developing curriculum and a way for developing assessments of curriculum. And you can see it here. And what the framework is, it says, it's very simple. Remember the playground. And remember some of the behaviors we engage in the playground. Well, those behaviors are things that we can all do with technology right now. And it's a word with C's. So we can collaborate, we can communicate, we can build community, we can create content, we can be creative, and we can choose our conducts. And we know from research on child development that children that do better in life, and this is longitudinal research that has followed cohorts and cohorts of children over many, many years, they know that children that do better are those that care, that can connect, that can contribute, that are competent, confident, and that have strong sense of moral compass or character. So you can see the play of the C's, right? And you can see the correlations. And what we're saying is, in this framework, is that new technologies actually can mediate. So basically what we want is to develop technological interventions, curriculum plus technology. Technology doesn't replace curriculum. Curriculum plus technology that will engage children in these kinds of positive behaviors to promote those kinds of positive assets, and then it's a cycle that repeats itself. This looks great for a paper, theoretical paper. You know, it's a wonderful framework, it's perfect, but guess what? You present this to real-world teachers, and they're like, okay, so, so I have actually a concrete program in my school where my principal Ogie gives me 20 minutes, and I have two computers, and actually I'm not, I cannot get them into the internet because there's password. So you really, each program has its own way. And so each program has to adapt this framework according to their own practices. And what I'm going to show you, so in this framework, this is mediated by the learning, the culture, the rituals, the values of each particular place. So you cannot, I cannot fill this up. I can only fill this up working together with my partners whoever those partners are, whoever that school is. And so yesterday I was giving this talk, and after me, after came a guy that was actually presenting all this prepackaged curriculum on science. And I had just finished saying, we cannot prepackage. I can prepackage the curriculum and the assessment, but there's a piece that needs to be co-constructed. And he came right after me, so it was a very interesting discussion afterwards. Uh, so what I'm going to show you is a concrete experience that we've done in a kindergarten classroom and you will and we'll slowly start filling this up based on what happened in this classroom. And again, keeping with this Jewish Sabbath, so something that you didn't mention in my... In my <laughs> so before coming to the U.S., I actually uh, started to, uh, to study to become a rabbi, and then I, I kind of quit. So a lot of my work or a lot of my metaphors come from, from the Jewish tradition, and a lot of the, the work I do is inspired by it. So this is... Um, you'll see. This video tells the story of the Miani Project, an exploration of robotics as a medium for kids to express their Jewish identity. Miani was a project of the DevTech Research Group 
at Tufts University in collaboration with JCDS, Boston's Jewish Community Day School. JCDS is Boston's pluralist Jewish K-8 day school. Its kindergarten class, as their culminating year-end project, put together a show of their work entitled Me Ami, Hebrew for Who Am I, showcasing their identities through their learning and growth over the year. Miani was part of a broader project called Tangible K, an NSF-funded project to investigate the use of innovative new technology in early education. This project is piloting an innovative programming environment called CHIRP, a hybrid tangible graphical computer language. The kindergarten teachers and students put together a timeline of the year with pictures and drawings of events spanning September to May. The goal was for kids to create a personalized robot representing them that would travel along this timeline, stopping at three points that marked events that were particularly important to them. Kids would use their robots to convey an action or emotion, expressing them at that moment, showing their journey throughout the year. We began by introducing the class to robotics. First, they became familiar with the materials, learning to construct sturdy robots that had all the required parts. Then, they learned to program the robots using the hybrid Chirp interface. Kids had the option of using either graphical icons on a computer or blocks with the same icons to give the robots their commands. In pairs, they completed a series of challenges teaching them the individual commands and how to use these in a correct sequence to reach a goal. As they worked, they learned underlying programming concepts such as loops and parameters. Next, children decorated their robots. Using art materials like markers, paper, plasticine, and popsicle sticks, along with Lego, each child created a platform that would sit on top of their robot, representing their identity in any way they chose. It has my name, it has a JCDS sign, because that's where I go to school. It has a bowl of oatmeal because I like to eat. Finally, kids moved to programming their robots. In design journals, they planned what their robot would do at each point in the timeline and the sequence of commands they would use to program each action. The design journals encouraged kids to plan a meaningful sequence of actions and stimulated their memories of their plans when programming the robot and testing it out. As kids picked the moments in the year that were meaningful to them or that they especially enjoyed, we saw that many of the programs they created represented them performing an action. This girl, for example, used her robot to show herself participating in her favorite activity, gym. It's September, on the first day of gym, it's Yeah? And what's the shaking show? What does that show about? At times, kids used the robots to represent not themselves, but a part of themselves. This boy depicted himself sewing a pillow for the Passover Seder by programming his robot to move backwards and forwards, mimicking his hands sewing. What's it showing? It's showing the needle. Sewing the needle for what? Other children focused not on the action, but on the emotion they experienced okay. at that point in time. So this girl used the spin command to represent her excitement at meeting her new teacher for the first time. Here's when I'm really excited to see Adina. Mm -hmm. And I can't stop spinning around. You know, like, so and some kids combined the two, as this girl did, to show her actions and thoughts on the first day of school. 
So in September, um, I was looking for my name, so I turned. Mm -hmm. I put my light on and off because it was bingo. After programming their individual stops along the timeline, kids put their three programs together to form a complete journey. As they worked on their robot's journeys, kids underwent a process of trial and error and problem solving when their program didn't work as expected. Kids repeatedly returned to the robot itself or to the program to figure out what went wrong and what changes they needed to make. This cycle of testing, problem solving, and refining their programs was an integral part of the kids' learning process. It expanded their knowledge and familiarity with the technology and gave them a sense of pride in their work. I tested it. It did it? Okay, so we only have to add after December to get it to February? So it's repeat um, three forward and On the final presentation day, kids had the opportunity to show their robots to their parents, run their programs, and explain the personal journey it represented. The Miani project provided kids with a new avenue to express their personal experiences and emerging identity. Over the course of the project, the kindergartners demonstrated to us not only their capacity to master a new technology and learn powerful new concepts, but their creativity, their perseverance, and their developing self-concept. The projects that kids created reflected their emerging understanding of themselves as unique individuals and provided a valuable window into their journey of growth, not through an outsider's eyes, but through their own. When you make a mistake, you get the answer from the mistake you made, and you can learn from the mistake. My favorite part was how you use your mind in a way. I was proudest that I finished my robot, and I finished doing such hard work. It felt like a test to me. So, this is one of the, one of the many videos, uh, if you actually want to see similar experience than in kindergarten classrooms, one that focuses on the Iditarod project, the Iditarod race, one that focuses on animals, one that focuses on the snow plows and mappings, just go to my website and you'll have them all available there. Uh, the idea here is I'm not sure how familiar you are with kindergartens, but when, with ki what kindergarten children can or cannot do, but this notion that a child will say, you repeat three, this child is doing multiplication, right? But who's teaching multiplication in kindergarten? Kids cannot multiply, and they get into variables, and they get into inputs and outputs, and they get into a lot of things that if we uh, listen to educators, these kids cannot do. But they are doing because they have this very concrete uh, material. Again, you saw that happening a lot of the things that happen in the playground. So we don't want 
a, a playpen kind of environment that will teach them multiplication. I'm all against that. But children are in the floor. They are doing this. They are doing that. It looks like chaos. They are engaging into things that are not so safe. The robots are breaking. Kids are crying. That's fine. You know, they learn how to deal with that the same way that they learn how to deal with a knee that's uh, broken in the playground. So going back to the, the, the diagram, right, and the classroom practice. So all of this happens because things are orchestrated in a way. If you put just the technology in a kindergarten classroom, none of this happens. And by the way, this is the third year that this particular uh, group of teachers are doing it. They don't need us anymore. They, they you know, they, the work, this, this video was done, was the first year. And they've done it last year, and now they are doing it again, this same unit. Uh, so for competence and content creation, we use licenses. So we give them a little piece of paper that looks like an engineering license. And every time they master some particular aspect, we give them a sticker. We also use this to assess, because how do you assess learning in a classroom that's full of you know, 20 kids, and they're all doing different things at different times, just like in the playground, and you cannot give them a test? How do you know what each child is learning? Of course, they're gonna have, all, all they're going to have working robots. That doesn't mean that they're going to understand what the robots are doing. It's very different from having a final project to understanding what this project is doing. So they come. We evaluate one-on-one. -on -one. We have a very careful protocol that you can see here that it's fast. Uh, someone is interested in looking at assessment. We come. We give them a sticker, next child, and like that for every unit. And we call them engineering licenses. For confidence, creativity, we have the design process. We give the child a design journal, which you saw. And basically, according to Massachusetts frameworks, this is what every child should be learning. To identify problems, to brainstorm, to construct prototypes, test, evaluate, redesign, communicate solutions. Well, it happens that although Massachusetts required to be teaching engineering frameworks, teachers say, we don't have time for this. Sorry. So we tell them, do you have time for this? This is the scientific method. And let me tell you, it shows very, very similar. And so teachers say, oh, yeah, we do science. It's required. It's tested the MCAS. So this is the way we get. And when we work with the language arts teachers, it happens that I gave a talk last week for a group of li librarians. And they were like, well, we have a process that looks very similar for librarians and for writing. So it's not so different. Um, so the choices of conduct, character, we have a little technique that where we give kids budgets. So like the... the like the, the Boy Scouts, you know. So once they master something, if a child finishes first and he's suddenly a robotic expert, instead of going around, a five-year-old won't. Once the five-year-old is finished, he's probably going to engage in making a mess in the room. He's not going to be the most helpful on its own, right? He's going to go around and create and destroy and play around and do a lot of things. So you want to canalize that energy in a positive way. So we say, okay, you finished first, now you're the robotic expert. Here's your badge. Go around. You have to help as many kids as you can. And like this, we're dividing the task and also canalizing the experiences. We also use a technique which is, uh, instead of giving children already sorted robotic kits, we have everything out in the room and we ask them to go and choose the parts that they need. So if I would say that to you, you probably go and choose one motor. But if you say that to a kindergarten, he goes out and takes 10 motors, 10 sensors, 10 red bricks. And so there's nothing left for the other kids. And it's okay. It's not a waste of time because within our framework, right, character and choices of conduct is part of the job. 
of the child. We want them to engage in these discussions. So we go to the child and say, well, do you really need 10 motors? What are you going to use them for? How about this Johnny that now doesn't have any motors? So that part of work, if your goal is just to build technological fluency, if your goal is just competence, content creation, or confidence and creativity, that would be a waste of time because you're just wasting time. There takes a lot of time to negotiate. But if your goal, that's why it's important a framework, if your goal also involves helping children choose their own conduct, then it's not a waste of time. It's by design that we actually want them to engage in these conflicts. So these blue things, these three things, are all about what I do with myself, with the technology, and the top ones are about a collabor a more what you do with others. So there's nothing in the robot itself. If I were using the web or, any, or virtual worlds or games, they would be built in into the technology, the tools for collaboration, for communication and community building. There's nothing in the technology itself of the robotic toys that we're using uh, that will engage them in that. So, what you, so because it's important in the framework, we want to supplement that with curriculum. So that's why, again, a framework is important. Because if you have a tool that doesn't support that, that means you're not going to engage kids. You're, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to engage them in teamwork. Well, teamwork with five-year-olds doesn't happen. You put four kids in a group, one is going to take over and do the stuff, the others are going to do something else. It just doesn't happen. So if we want to make sure that collaboration happens, this is one of our tools, the collaboration web. Remember, these kids don't know how to read or write. So picture of the child at the center, picture of all their classmates. Every time you help someone, you draw a line. Every time they help you draw a line back, you embed the math. We graph how many this direction, how many that directions. You learn how to graph. At the end, you bring the literacy, they write thank you notes to those kids. So you have how everything is integrated. Communication connection, we have technology circles. Kindergartens are very used to circles. They have a big rug. They sit, they discuss, they talk. We have a big rug, but we don't sit because we like playgrounds. So this is what we do in our big rug. We actually act out the robotics behaviors. So this is what kids experiment with their bodies. So we have a rug, but we don't sit. And we usually have Mrs. or Mr. Robot Head that will play out and the commands that the children will shout. So understanding that programming is following a sequence of commands, it's a huge deal for kindergartens. So you can spend a whole year just doing that. Uh, it's a big, 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 powerful idea. And finally, as you saw in the video, for community building, we always have open houses where children create their posters, they show their projects, they share with others. Usually they write invitations, so we build the language arts and so forth. So this is an example of how this particular school has filled in this, this blank of the classroom practice. Different schools have different ways of doing it. And we propose, we suggest, but it's really important to to complete that column. So this is a little bit of the, I want to give you a sense of the, of the big research, and I, I didn't plan to talk heavily on research, so if people are interested in the research, we can talk soon. But basically, this is funded by an NSF grant. Uh, the first year, we just work in natural setting. We observe what kids were doing. We set up to go with just a tangible interface, so just the blocks that you connect. Uh, what happens is one of my students made a meet. We had two two classrooms using just blocks and two classrooms using the computer interface with the same. One student one day called me and said, I made a mistake, I mixed the, the conditions and it turned out that one of the classrooms was using both the blocks and the computer screen. And so first I was like, Jordan, I'm gonna 
<laughs> the whole year of doing research is going to go down the drain because you mix the conditions. And then he says, no, wait, but I saw something really interesting. I look at transitions and when they were transitioning between one and S, and I think I saw a pattern. So then we were like, perfect, and we actually observe that what we observed in that first year was that kids were, when they encounter a difficult concept, they would go to the blocks. And once they mastered that concept, they would go to the mouse and the screen. And this was a pattern that we saw over and over. So then, instead of having, our original thought was just tangible programming language without the screen. But we realized that there were points that they wanted to be grown-ups. They wanted just the mouse and the, and the computer screen. So we, that's how we ended up with a hybrid language, that as a, the, where they can use both the blocks and the screen and switch back and forth, which actually makes sense because that's what they do in math. They switch back and forth between manipulatives and the paper and pencil, and they go back and forth. So why in programming we were just thinking one or the other? So actually that was a mistake that was great for our research, and that Year two, we had 35 kindergarten students come to a lab. We did one-on-one -on -one analysis using very strict Piagetian codes and protocols so you can really understand what they are thinking. And then we went back into six kindergarten classrooms where we went trained the teachers and the teachers themselves were doing all this work. And those are the videos that I say you can, you can have available. And we have all this data that we are analyzing. Basically, I just show you that uh, kindergarten teachers are not particularly interested in programming. Right, they really they believe us that programming might be good, that engineering design process is something they need to be teaching, but it's not something that they care about. But sequencing is something they really care about because everything that you do in life is about putting things in a sequence. And it's the beginning of, of math and it's the beginning of literacy. And so we were able to show using a very well-known uh, tool of sequencing that after being exposed to this intervention, there was an increase in their sequencing skills. So... If you believe in these kinds of tests, you're happy with this result. <laughs> so this is just a quote. The other blocks can go randomly, but if you want to do a certain thing, you have to put them in a certain order. And my child always had some sense of pattern and why step A came before step B, but he seems to be taking pleasure in the logic of these steps now. This is interesting. So sequencing now becomes something fun. And who wants to read this? Uh, this quote, this is actually for uh, one of the teachers that got these kids the next year. So these kids that you saw were in kindergarten and then they moved to the first year, to first grade. Um, can someone read this out loud? Too much of me. <laughs> okay. um, I don't know if it's robotics, but I have never had a group of kids pick this up, writing how-to books, as quickly. Additionally, the instructions that they give in the step-by-step -step format of how-to books are so detailed and clear. I know I can teach, but I'm not that good. Just thought you'd find it interesting that what I was seeing with their math skills, specifically showing how they solve problems and the matching proofs, I'm now seeing with literacy. Exciting, <laughs> teacher. <laughs> so basically what happens is every year teachers teach these how-to books, how to do something. And they had to spend a lot of time in teaching them sequencing. What this teacher realizes when these kids that had been exposed to that curriculum came into first grade, she didn't have to teach. They already knew how to do it. And so, and this is happening, you know, we, now we have, that was the first time, but we see this and this. And then this is the, the principal reporting. Uh, Scott, you want to you read <laughs> the principal? Frustrated with getting the wrong answers in math and were more willing to go back and try again. 
akin to the process used when they worked with robotics. Principal reporting on feedback <laughs> from first-grade teachers. <laughs> so basically, these are things that when we go, we know are happening, but when the teachers and the principals see them, they're like, wow, this is happening. And all these, my child learned about cause and effect and making things go. So we basically interview all parents and see what they, what they learn. They, one of the things more interesting that we learn, this is what they learn, what we learn is when we went into this project, we kind of had an idea of what the learning trajectories would be like. And we thought that we wanted every child to end up at the circle and to understand kind of as a system level, that in order to engage in robotics, you need to have a robot, you need to have a program, and that there is a correspondence between the commands you give and the objects that this robot has. So if you're going to put a go forward, you need a motor because otherwise it's not going to go forward. And that this robot is not just something that's going to forward, 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 but it has a goal. Go to Scott and then come back. So it's able to really tell a complex story. So that's what we wanted to get all the kids at. And we thought they were going to, based on stuff, you know, previous research and previous experiences, what we saw is that these are the steps. They start by understanding units. So forward, 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 or forward, backwards, you know, it, blocks, one string with the other, and they make these long, long, long programs. And then they will understand the connections that you can use. If this happens, then this happens. And then finally, they were going to put everything in context. But we thought it was going to be a very linear, that they all master this, and then they move to this, and then they reach here. Actually, what we found is completely different. We found that some children, the children have different starting points. They start all over the place. Some children understand the units, and then we want them to move to the mover. Others understand the context, understand the story, but they really don't get it, the individual order of commands. And they're able to tell very complex stories, but they cannot deconstruct their programs or how they did what they did. And so basically, this is important for, for we know a lot on math learning trajectories and on literacy learning trajectories about what is the right way to start. But there's not enough work with little kids about how, we, how do we start and so if we want to develop curriculum and interventions, we really need to take this into consideration because kids are going to start from all over the place. And this is, this is very interesting if you're, uh, for in terms of the technology itself. I was telling you about that. Um, they will, uh, at the beginning, we thought just one way of interacting, the tangible blocks, manipulatives, and then we realized, no, we want a hybrid approach where children can go back and forth between the tangible and the screen. We observe now more carefully what we anecdotally saw that as the children uh, master a concept, they move out of the tangibles, but as the concept becomes hard, they go back to the tangible. And so we see a lot of this back and forth. And also we saw children using the graphical interface for rapid prototyping. So when they were thinking hard, they build their programs on the floor. But if they had to change a parameter or something small, it was easy to do it in the computer. So they would just use the computer, but then when thinking on the blocks. So these are interesting uh, ideas of how different materials allow for different ways of thinking. And the big problem, and what we're working right now with the new NSF grant, is this is great. You saw we were using the old RCX, Mindstorms, right? It's old. It's out of the business. Uh, the new Mindstorms is not something that we like or that young kids can use. Uh, and also it's very, very expensive. And the WeDo, which is the Lego technology that's for this, you know, for, you know, second grade app, it's, it has lots of problems. You cannot make things that move in a, you know, that go around the playground. 
you know, they're very, you have to be connected to the computer. So now with this uh, new NSF grant, we're working uh, developing different prototypes that are going to be less than 30 bucks. And so we're piloting the first, we're just getting our first pilots and we're going to pilot it with early childhood teachers this summer. Uh, so we can really provide uh, something that's cheap for all teachers and not depend on Lego because there's no, you know, Lego is great, but we don't need. Uh, so that, that's one of the projects uh, that is directly relevant to this. And if you're interested in more of the beginning of the talk, kind of this framework, this is my book that's coming out as we speak by Oxford University Press. And it talks about this framework in general. And then I also brought, this is, uh, if you guys want to see it, is the Blocks to Robots. It's particularly specific for early childhood teachers. Probably you are not early childhood teachers, but <laughs> it's a why. And if you want uh, to see more of the videos or look at the curriculum or papers, more on the research side, that's the, that's the website. Um, so that's it. So <laughs> I think you're all familiar with the drill. We're going to take questions, but, and we're going to use the mic just because we're also recording this, even though we can all hear each other. So um, I'll just uh, ask right off if there any, anyone has questions to start out. <laughs> yes. Hi, Marina. Hey. hey. How are you? Um, I find this fascinating as a way to think about teaching game design. Um, and not to kids. I guess that you don't need to teach kids how to invent games. Uh, but one of the hurdles of trying to get a more varied demographic into making games is that there are different types of thinking. And game design is taught in certain places more as a mathematical uh, approach. There are, but things like um, more storytelling or like world building is something that is kind of like left behind. I think that I like your... Concept, uh, the the circles, the different uh, areas of understanding of systems, you know, shows that we all come to understand systems from different places. Uh, so what I'm trying to get at is, is are there any principles that we can kind of m move on from kids to teaching adults about systems? Not uh, not all adults are going to understand systems either. Yeah. So I think with adults, and this is beyond just games, like anything, we, with kids you don't have to deconstruct. With adults, the first thing is you have to deconstruct the learning because they will come to game design, for example, with clear ideas of what a game is and what a game is and what is not. And their ideas might reflect their particular age and what were the games they were exposed to and their first ideas of what games were fun because some of the games that might be fun for kids today might not be fun for an adult that has a different notion of what fun was. Uh, so I think with, with adults... The, your, you know, the circles, there's something else, which means first deconstructing what your notions are and putting them in the table and kind of open them up. And, and I think that's something that's different for, with kids. You don't need to do, or at least, you know, they come very open. And that's what actually one of the challenges we have with teachers, that you spend your first day of any professional development workshop kind of breaking down things, and then you can start building. I don't know if that... <laughs> yeah. So I, it looks like from your presentation you've worked a lot in, in private schools and it's worked well there. It, could you talk about um, 
if you've piloted this yeah. in the public school, actually, and, and, and if not, what the difficulties? No, no, no. Have been actually, or? I have a. We work all those six kindergarten classes where the video I show is a private school, but uh, we work with uh, Somerville Public Schools. So the teachers actually, and um, I would say, in public schools work as well or even better than in private schools, and the results were actually much more. Uh, if I show you the numbers there was a ma major change in the public schools and in the private schools because the private schools, they started higher, so you didn't see so much change. In the public schools, they started lower, and so the level of change. And right now we're working in a, a, in a whole school with 300... It's an early childhood school in Harlem, in New York City, with 300 kids, pre-K to 2. It's a failing school, and uh, 25 teachers have been exposed to this, like the, the method and the technology and the different curriculum. The curriculum they're working there is a playground. Uh, so they, are, uh, they have their own playground and they have the whole units of study where they go to the playground, they look at the geometrical shapes in the playground, the math, the, and then they design their own uh, playgrounds of the future with this kind of technology. So we did have a lot of experience with, in public schools. And I would say, to my surprise, it wasn't so different than it was in the private schools. I thought it was going to be a lot more different. Um, I would say the teachers in the public schools, at least the teachers that we work with, of course, these are teachers that, except the Harlem school, which is the principal, it came down from the principal, right? Because she's doing it throughout the school. doesn't matter if you as a teacher want or not want. The other schools, it really came out from the teachers. So those are, you know, bias because they want to, right? And the private school, again, it came from the principal. So some teachers didn't want to. So I think the, maj the major difference is that uh, who decides we're going to do this job. If it's the teacher, your likelihood of success is higher. If it's the principal, depends, because some teachers might buy in or might not buy, uh, buy in into that. But we were, uh, actually, it's very rewarding in some of the public schools because you see a lot of change. But it requires really commitment from the principal to say to the teacher, I'm allowing this to happen, and you're going to revote. This curriculum is for uh, 20, 25 hours, so I'm allowing 25 hours of your time for, for this. And I'm allowing chaos, and I'm allowing computers, and I'm allowing uh, open space, because a lot of the time they don't work in the classroom. They need these spaces, so they go outside the corridor. But so far, the work with the public schools have been actually a lot more uh, rewarding than what that were I thought it would be. It might be because they were kindergarten classrooms and so they are not so they're not worried about testing yet. They're not worrying about all these things that as you get into public schools with older kids, they are worried about. But here uh, it's something that they're, they're not worried. Actually, we had one experience with the Boston public school system where the superintendent was looking at this stuff. He was like, this is amazing, this is amazing. I was, I was great. You know, this is good. And so I said, why do you think it's so amazing? I wanted to know what he was focusing on. It's like, it's amazing the level of engagement of the children. I was like, level of engagement? All kindergarten students engage. And he's like, no, no, you don't get it. It's, you know, he wasn't even interested in the computational thing in the programming, nothing. He just cared that the kids were engaged. And that, that's kind of sad because we want to go beyond the phase of engagement. But. Hi, thank Hi. you. Um, so my head is spinning now. Um, I'm actually coming over from, I just graduated from Harvard's uh, graduate program of education. And as I'm kind of watching your presentation, my background is actually in art. And I see so many connections um, over to that 
sort of world. And I guess I was kind of thinking, I, I see a, a much stronger connection to math and science, but I'm immediately making, yeah. you know, the innovation and going back and, and doing a process and thinking about it and making revisions. I mean, that's such an artistic process as well. I'm wondering if um, mm -hmm. you've considered pulling more um, artistic and then therefore holistic and interdisciplinary um, content providers and, and thinkers in, mm. into this process. That would be great. It's actually a piece that we're missing. Uh, you know, what happens in schools, and this is where we're stuck, is that people want STEM. They want STEM, you know, and so you, cannot, you go and you say, oh, this is STEM, great, come and talk, science, technology, engineering, math. And maybe they should all be wanting STEAM, including the arts, right? But it's not so easy to go from STEM to STEAM. And again, so a lot of our thinking with my student hasn't been on the STEAM, you know, or the A, just because schools haven't required that. But I think it's such a natural connection. And also, it's, it's a missed opportunity because when these kids were creating these robots, they, if we had an art teacher or someone that knows about art, I know zero. If we had someone to really collaborate and make it really integrated curriculum, not just with the science, the math, the STEM piece, but with the art, I think it would be really, really amazing. I have one idea that I have a project in my head that I really, really want to do, which is hopefully someday, of course, there's no funding for that, at least not for NSF, that already warned me enough Jewish stuff. Just you know, <laughs> keep going with your STEM. Don't go too far on the me and e culture thing. We don't want to get too close to that. But um, you know the carnival in Brazil? So I thought, I want these kids. So you have these flotillas of robots that kids create, and you have another program, and they have to actually dress up these robots. So you bring the arts, you bring the music, they have to create the music, the difference, and they are expressing the culture, right? They are expressing different, so you imagine uh, kids from all over the place, from different cultures, different religions, coming up with this big carnival thing, and you're not just the steam, but the steam there, and so I, I'm, that's kind of, <laughs> yes. Hopefully it will happen sometime. I'm just going to take moderator's prerogative to say that as somebody who uh, started life as a theater major and spent the last 20 years as a fellow traveler with scientists and mathematicians, it's always stunning to me that people didn't know, don't know, that the process of art and the process of math and science is, is so similar and that, that we should be telling that to kids all the time and helping them see that they can really cross those boundaries regularly instead of mm. uh, pigeon, pigeonholing them in, in one or the other. Um, if, uh, any other, are there other questions? Yes. Uh, so there's, and I, I have to kind of ground this in the, in the statement that I, I taught high school for, for two years before I did any of the stuff I've been doing for the past however long. And there, um, there is this longstanding tension between notions of education as delivery of content and notions of education as uh, the acquisition of skills. Um, and specifically when it comes to assessment, because it's notoriously difficult to assess the acquisition of skills and it's um, <laughs> presumed to be easier to assess whether or not you can remember the date of you know, a certain event um, in history. Um, not to mention the fact that um, uh, you know, all of our standardized tests and our admissions processes to higher, uh, to, you know, uh, higher education institutes um, seem to want to focus on this kind of um, delivery of content over skill because we just haven't gotten good at assessing <laughs> the other. Um, I'm curious how 
how that informs your um, your your experiment design actually because you had kind of an, an interesting statement where you know if you believe this kind of assessment you know then uh, you know then this this works for you um, I, I heard it so I'm really I'm really kind of curious how in, in a, a clearly kind of skill based and, and kind of behavior based um, you know pedagogy how you deal with this issue of assessment and especially when it comes to research funding and thank you thank all you of that, for that mess. <laughs> So we are very interested, and this is a, you know, a discussion I have with my students often, because they think research is this neat thing. And you can do something neat and publish it. Do you believe it? I'm not sure. You know what I mean? Do you believe that this, that's real learning because it was published? I don't know. So we can talk about that. This is my perspective. Uh, so what, we believe, what I believe when I see this is I look at the computer logs. I look at their change in their programs. I look at the interactions. So a child that at the beginning creates a really, really long program. I go forward, forward, forward. It has 20 forwards, right? And then by day three or by day four, he understood repeat. And so he has a repeat five <laughs> forward, right? So he, you can see how it's changing in this program. And you can see process, really, of course. That's hard to assess because that means that I need to look at the computer logs for every single one of those 20 children. I need to talk to the child because I need to understand if he did it because he copied someone else or if he did it because he understood. And if he actually understood that, as opposed, kindergartens are monkeys. One child does something and everyone will do it, right? <laughs> it, it, probably high schoolers also, but they're more sophisticated, but you know. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's how we go around that. And I think the most powerful thing that tells me in this particular work about change over time is uh, debugging. So that's the, the concept I'm most interested in. And debugging is a way of problem solving. But problem solving is, seems too big. You know, they're solving problems all the time. But it's very hard to, to, to assess problem solving in a way that's in the natural environment. So when we're working one-on-one -on -one with a child, we can look at it. But when you're working with 20 kids, 20 monkeys, right there, they're all copying each other. It's very hard. So um, that's one of the ways we go about a process. And that also using these design journals to try to stop their thinking at different states. And if in an ideal world, we will do video journals. And that's something that would be worth exploring because the, the kids cannot write. And so they need a teacher to write for them. And there's some level of translation there. But if you could think in the imagined world where you have some booth already set up in the classroom where when the child is ready to move to the next level, they can go and hit the button and record you know, their design journals and then move out. And this is, uh, this is also a good tool to really see thinking. And, and schools want that, but at the end of the day, <laughs> it's how they did in the score. So. Well, well, uh, Jim. Uh, I think just a question, just uh, expanding on that last one is, um, um, how do you present the project to schools that you want to go and work with? Uh, I mean, 
the different things that you're dealing with here uh, make me wonder what are the specific goals? Like, what are, what are the top goals that uh, you have in mind when you actually present the project to, say, a school that you want to work with? And how do you articulate those? So it depends the school. So, so far, we were lucky that actually the first school we approach by saying we have this uh, this project that it's about introducing robotics in kindergarten classrooms. They were like, wow, robotics, that's great. Is it free? Yes, it's free. Okay, what do, what, what do we need to do? You don't need to do nothing. This is the first school. The first school. We didn't do teacher training. We didn't do professional development. We didn't ask for anything. It was a gift for them. Sure, come and do it. Kindergarten, we're not so worried about teaching certain things at certain time. Are they going to be writing? Are they going to be you know, doing some math? That's cool. Do it. It brings that's the first school. Then we were lucky enough that schools came to us. So usually schools, the word spreads, and so we didn't have to go to schools. And all of these schools, the Harlem School, all of these schools come to us. But I would say that the, if I had to go find schools, so so far it hasn't happened, but because the word spreads, we have a waiting list of schools. <laughs> like You probably know, usually schools want this, which also is interesting because the schools that are not open for this, they're not doing it. So it would be interesting, actually, to work with different kinds of schools. Uh, but I think you have to see what the school wants. So, for example, the Harlem School, it's a school that, uh, it's a magnet school, and they were going to close the school because it's beyond, it's so under-failing. It's really failing. So this school says, we tried everything. Nothing works. We know this is going to have at least visibility. They're not going to close the school. And, they, and it's, it's going to bring play back. So this particular school, the principal felt that play was getting taken over by this uh, standardized assessment. And she's very concerned because it's a pre-K to two public school and these kids don't get to play in a way. And she didn't want play out. And she found that this was a natural way that she couldn't go to the parents and say, we're going to bring more play because the parents wanted more tests. These parents wanted their kids to succeed and they see su- succeed as testing. So the, the testing came from the parents. The demand to take play out of the school comes from the parents. The principal cannot bring play back, but she felt that this is a wonderful opportunity to bring robotics, which looks like math, science, STEM, but also to bring play into. So this is one school. Different schools have their own reasons of why they want to do things. And I think the, the most important thing, if we had to approach schools, is to listen to them and say, we have this amazing project that's about we think it's amazing. It's about robotics into a school. Uh, what are the issues you are dealing with? What are your issues? And they might say, usually they say STEM is a big issue for them. They don't know how to. But you have to listen to what their needs. That suggests then that your, your goals and your, your objectives are really quite broad and okay. in some sense diffuse. Well, my objective is really to be using technology, the PTD framework. Mm-hmm. So I want to develop interventions that use technology to help children develop, not just learn, develop in positive ways. So, for example, if I go to a school that tells me, you know what, we're just interested in competence and confidence. We don't want any of this collaboration stuff. We want to do competitions at Lego style, Lego league first. I said, thank you, I don't want to work with you. So if I go to a school that tells me, you know, these choices of conduct, they're going to get into ethical issues, ethical dilemmas. We want to avoid any discussion of ethical things. Then I said to the school, no, I don't want to. So my, my goal is how can we develop these interventions that will help children become programmers, become engineers, but also become positive 
contributors to society and grow happy and and so that's why they hold framework so that that would that would defi that would say why I say no to a school when you when you write your I'm so I'm, I'm give you I'll give you no I'll give you a school that I said no actually this is interesting uh, so there was this uh, so this is a school that is a Christian school and they saw the work I did in Miami with a Jewish thing, and they said, we want, this is fabulous, we want to use this to teach creation to kids. So to go through seven days of creation and develop a program we thought is wonderful because instead of the months of the year, we want to put the seven days. You know, I, I took classes at Harvard Divinity School, I love the idea. And I said, sure, that will be fascinating. And, and I said, then we can really build the idea of how this relates to science and do the whole thing. You know, and the principal said, no, we don't want to go there. And I said, what? And I said, what do you mean? We're just going to leave it as, this, as, as it is? Not right. And, I, and, I, and she said, well, you know what? We don't want to get into conflicts about that. So we rather want to avoid any mentioning of that. And so then I said, that's not the way. So I told her, I don't want to be, you know, I, no, thank you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so when you write out your NSF grants. I don't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. How do you how do you present the goals of the projects? So this is this one is for example the missing T and E. Well, the first one is developmentally appropriate uh, technologies for early childhood education. Okay. So the, there are two goals. Yeah. The one is what is a developmentally appropriate uh, robotic environment for early childhood? Mm -hmm. We don't know. So we made a big contribution, which is these hybrid interfaces. Mm -hmm. We didn't set out to do hybrid. Mm -hmm. I think hybrid is the way, from what I've seen. So one is developmentally appropriate, and then what are the kinds of learning trajectories that children take in programming and building with robotics? So those are the two mm -hmm. core uh, research questions for the NSF grant. Mm -hmm. And then developing curriculum that could be uh, used by someone else, that's not us. So we do a lot of professional development. Mm -hmm. So that's for NSF. And the other one that we are seeing now with the new hardware is the missing T and E on uh, STEM. Because most of the work on STEM and early childhood, it's early childhood, is on the math and science. And technology and engineering are used, engineering maybe not, and technology as a tool for, you know, play, paint or something like that. So that's the NSF. None of the, the, the others, the religious stuff, that's just my own in my, you know, little thing. But it's not, the, it's not what the grant says or what I, my paper is about. So I have a question. Um, so we know if you work in the education space at all, you know that the conversation in the country about education is terribly degraded, that people tend not to even understand what the issues are as they talk about improving quality or testing. I mean, um, mm. and that, and that uh, politicians and parents and educators tend to talk past each other. And when, it gets, when you get down to technology, when it's about whether it's games or whether it's technology, it tends to get reduced to technology. Is it good or is it bad? Mm -hmm. um, clearly, I, I know from our conversations, we share concerns about screen time for kids. It's not a... Um, how do you help parents distinguish, as you talk to them, between um, productive uses of technology and mm -hmm. um, troublesome uses of technology? Yeah. So usually I, I, I present these two, the playpen playground metaphors, and those are very clear for parents, especially parents of, of children. And I think if you don't know, think. Does it look more to being in a playpen or more like being in a playground? That's the question. 
and screen time looks like more being in a playpen and other kinds of uses of technology. And so I said, if you're going to use screen time, how long would you leave your child in a playpen? They say, well, not that long. Well, I have to do something. Well, I say, well. So I try to use already existing metaphors. And actually, I'm not, sometimes I, I'm very unpopular in schools because sometimes, you know, people hear me giving this talk and then a school calls me to, you know, it happened in Belmont actually. The PTO calls me and says, come give a talk. So it's a slightly different talk than this. Or, because we want our goal is to convince the principal to get um, all these smart boards into the school. And so I come, I give the talk, and at the end I say, well, sometimes smart boards can be like playpens. So the PTOs hate me because they, you know, but it's true. It depends how you're going to use. So you're investing all this money on smart boards, and then they're going to be, it depends if the teachers are not trained on how to use them. They don't know how to do creative ways. It's just a screen time, and it's a lot of money that's, that's wasted. So sometimes I actually advocate for no technology than for technology. So I'm, I'm, I'm strange in that way. That uh, I, If it's going to be a playground type of technology, I'm all for it. If it's going to be something else, I'd rather not go back to the, go play in the woods, you know? Like, I'm <laughs> uh, but I think, so going to the Harlem school, the New York school, uh, what we're doing is something interesting because parents are a big component there because they are all for traditional assessments, traditional uses of technology. They don't really, it's a school that's pushing for what they think is excellence. And there is this big thing that excellence equals to improving your s scores, right? And so we are doing actually uh, two evenings with the parents, uh, where parents are going to come and experience the same kids, the same things that the children are experiencing. Uh, because we want them to really, if we want to change education, ch starting with the teachers is not enough. You need to start with the parents, because the parents are the ones that are going to go to the board and, and, or the committees, or, and those are the ones that are going to demand some kind of education. So it's almost silly that we're not educating parents. We're only educating children. <laughs> well, uh, there'll be more opportunity after this for uh, with the reception for you to, um, to ask uh, additional questions. But uh, I want to thank you again for coming. You, it's a real privilege having you here. <laughs> okay.